Hello and welcome to Sleep Cove, a place to come for a great night's sleep. Please listen to this recording in a safe place where you can safely go to sleep. Hello to everyone out there. Tonight's reading is a classic mystery written by Agatha Christie of Poirot and the Mystery of Hunter's Lodge. So sit back, get cosy, and listen to this classic mystery as you fall asleep. And, if you fall asleep in the middle of the story, remember to come back to it the night after, if you'd like to. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness, or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it's professional counselling done securely online. Visit betterhelp.com sleepcove, that's better H-E-L-P, and join over the 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There's a special offer for all Sleep Cove listeners where you can get 10% off your first month by just going to betterhelp.com slash sleepcove. I can really recommend this company if you're looking for some mental health support. Thank you. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be recommending a few other podcasts that might spark your interest. The first one is called Well Far. Running can be a great way to de-stress and get your energy levels up. With so much information out there, it's hard to know where to start. Wellfar, the running podcast, hosted by Amy Lane, author, runner, health editor, and fitness expert, is your coach, running buddy, and lifeline to other runners around the world. Offering a range of nutritional advice, training tips, as well as inspirational stories from well-known and impressive runners around the world. Well Far The Running Podcast is available wherever you find your podcasts. Here at Sleep Cove, we strongly believe that mindfulness can be used as a tool to help people relax and de-stress. With World Mental Health Day coming up on Sunday the 10th of October, I'll be releasing three special episodes next week, in the first week of October, to help listeners unwind and take care of their mental health. There'll be a daytime meditation for mindfulness. There'll be an episode on anxiety and also an episode on confidence. So I really hope you enjoy it and please tune in next week. This Poirot short story will be available without music on Sleep Cove Premium. So please go to patreon.com sleepcove or sleepcove.com support to get access to that episode. Thank you so much. And let's begin. Poirot and the Mystery of Hunter's Lodge After all, murmured Poirot, it is possible that I should not die this time. Coming from a convalescent influenza patient, I hailed the remark as showing a beneficial optimism. I myself had been the first sufferer from the disease. Poirot in his turn had gone down. 
He was sitting up in bed, propped up with pillows, his head muffled in a woolen shawl, and was slowly sipping a particular noxious design, which I had prepared according to his directions. His eye rested with pleasure upon a neatly graduated row of medicine bottles which adorned the mantelpiece. Yes, yes, my little friend continued. Once more shall I be myself again, the great Hercule Poirot, the terror of evildoers. Figure to yourself, mon ami, that I have a little paragraph to myself in society gossip. But yes, here it is. It says, criminals, all out. Hercule Poirot, and believe me girls, he's some Hercules. Our own pet society detective can't get a grip on you. Cause why? Cause he got la grip himself. I laughed. Good for you, Poirot. You're becoming quite a public character. Unfortunately, you haven't missed anything of particular interest during this time. That is true. The few cases I have had to decline did not fill me with any regret. Our landlady stuck her head in at the door. There's a gentleman downstairs. He must see Monsieur Poirot or you, Captain. Seeing as he was in a great to-do, and with all that quite the gentleman, I brought up his card. She handed me the bit of pasteboard. Mr. Roger Havering, I read. Poirot motioned with his head towards the bookcase, and I obediently pulled forth who's who. Poirot took it from me and scanned the pages rapidly. Second son of 5th Baron Windsor, married 1913, Zoe, fourth daughter of William Crabb. Hmm, I said, I rather fancy that's the girl who used to act at the frivolity. Only she called herself Zoe Carisbrook. I remember she married some young man about town, just before the war. Would it interest you, Hastings, to go down and hear what our visitor's particular little trouble is? Make him all my excuses, said Poirot. Roger Havering was a man of about forty, well set up and of smart appearance. His face, however, was haggard, and he was evidently labouring under great agitation. Captain Hastings? You are Monsieur Poirot's partner, I understand. It is imperative that he should come with me to Derbyshire today. I'm afraid that's impossible, I replied. Poirot was ill in bed. Influenza. His face fell. Dear me, that is a great blow to me. The matter on which you want to consult him is serious, I said. My God, yes. My uncle, the best friend I have in the world was foully murdered last night. Here in London? I replied. No, in Derbyshire. I was in town and received a telegram from my wife this morning. Immediately upon its receipt, I determined to come round and beg Monsieur Poirot to undertake the case. If you would excuse me a minute, I said, struck by a sudden idea. I rushed upstairs and in a few brief words acquainted Poirot with the situation. He took any further words out of my mouth. I see, I see, 
you want to go yourself, is it not so? Well, why not? You should know my methods by now. All I ask is that you should report to me fully every day and follow implicitly any instructions I may wire you. To this, I willingly agreed. An hour later, I was sitting opposite Mr. Havering in a first-class carriage on the Midwell Railway, speeding rapidly away from London. To begin with, Captain Hastings, you must understand that Hunter's Lodge, where we are going, and where the tragedy took place, is only a small shooting box in the heart of the Derbyshire Moors. Our real home is near Newmarket, and we usually rent a flat in town for the season. Hunter's Lodge is looked after by a housekeeper, who is quite capable of doing all we need when we run down for an occasional weekend. Of course, during the shooting season, we take down some of our own servants from Newmarket. My uncle, Mr. Harrington Pace, as you may know, my mother was a Miss Pace of New York, has, for the last three years, made his home with us. He never got on well with my father, or my elder brother, and I suspect that my being somewhat of a prodigal son myself, rather increased than diminished his affection towards me. Of course I am a poor man, and my uncle was a rich one. In other words, he paid the piper. But though exciting in many ways, he was not really hard to get on with, and suggested that we should run down to Derbyshire for a full day or two. My wife telegrammed to Mrs. Middleton, the housekeeper, and we went down the same afternoon. Yesterday evening I was forced to return to town, but my wife and my uncle remained on. This morning I received this telegram. He handed it over to me. Come at once, Uncle Harrington, murdered last night. Bring good detective if you can, but do come. Zoe. Then as yet, you know no details, I asked. No, I suppose it will be in the evening papers. Without doubt, the police are in charge. It was about three o'clock when we arrived at the little station at Elmersdale. From there, a five-mile drive brought us to a small grey stone building in the midst of the rugged moors. A lonely place, I observed with a shiver. Havering nodded. I shall try and get rid of it. I could never live here again. We unlatched the gate and were walking up the narrow path to the oak door when a familiar figure emerged and came to meet us. Chap, I shouted. The Scotland Yard inspector grinned at me in a friendly fashion before addressing my companion. Mr. Avering, I think. I've been sent down from London to take charge of this case, and I'd like a word with you, if I may, sir. My wife, Hastings stuttered. I've seen your good lady, sir, and the housekeeper. I won't keep you a moment but I'm anxious to get back to the village now, that I've seen all there is to see there. I know nothing as yet as to what. Exactly, 
said Jap soothingly, but there are just one or two little points I'd like your opinion about all the same. Captain Hastings here, he knows me, and he'll go up to the house and tell them you're coming. What have you done with the little man by the way, Captain Hastings? He's in and bed with influenza, I said. Is he now? I'm sorry to hear that. Rather the case of the cart without the horse. You being here without him, isn't it? And on his rather ill-timed jest, I went on to the house. I rang the bell, as Jappa closed the door behind him. After some moments, it was opened to me by a middle-aged woman in black. Mr. Havering will be here in a moment, I explained. He has been detained by the inspector. I have come down with him from London to look into the case. Perhaps you can tell me briefly what occurred last night. Come inside, sir. She closed the door behind me and we stood in the dimly lighted hall. It was after dinner last night, sir, that the man came. He asked to see Mr. Pace, sir, and seeing that he spoke the same way, I thought it was an American gentleman, friend of Mr. Pace's, and I showed him into the gun room, and then went to tell Mr. Pace. He wouldn't give any name, which of course was a bit odd. Now I come to think of it. I told Mr. Pace, and he seemed puzzled like, but he said to the mistress, Excuse me, Zoe, while I just see what this fellow wants. He went off to the gunroom and went back to the kitchen, but after a while I heard loud voices, as if they were quarrelling, and came out into the hall. At the same time, the mistress, she comes out too, and just then there was a shot, and then a dreadful silence. We both ran to the gunroom door, but it was locked and we had to go round to the window. It was open and there inside was Mr. Pace, all shot and bleeding. What became of the man? I said. He must have got away through the window, sir, before we got to it. And then? Mrs. Havering sent me to fetch the police. Five miles to walk it was. They came back with me and the constable. He stayed all night and this morning the police gentleman from London arrived. What was this man like who called to see Mr. Pace? The housekeeper reflected. He had a black beard, sir, and was about middle-aged and had on a light overcoat. Beyond the fact that he spoke like an American, I didn't notice much about him. I see. Now I wonder if I can see Mrs. Havering. She's upstairs, sir. Shall I tell her? If you please, tell her that Mr. Havering is outside with Inspector Jap, and that the gentleman he has brought back with him from London is anxious to speak to her as soon as possible. Very good, sir. I was in a fever of impatience to get all the facts. Jap had two or three hours start of me, and his anxiety to be gone made me keen to be close at his heels. Mrs. Havering did not keep me waiting long. In a few minutes I learnt a light step descending the stairs, and looking up to see a very handsome young woman coming towards me. She wore a flame-coloured jumper that set off the slender boyishness of her figure. 
on her dark head was a little hat of flame-coloured leather. Even the present tragedy could not dim the vitality of her personality. I introduced myself and she nodded in quick comprehension. Of course I haven't often heard of you and your colleague, Monsieur Poirot. You have done some wonderful things together, haven't you? It was very clever of my husband to get you so promptly. Now will you ask me questions? That is the easiest way, isn't it, of getting to know all you want about this dreadful affair. Thank you, Mrs. Havery. Now, what time was it that this man arrived? I said. It must have been before nine o'clock. We'd finished dinner, and we were sitting over our coffee and cigarettes. Your husband had already left for London? Yes, he went up by quarter past six. Did he go by car or to the station, or did he walk? Our own car isn't down here. One came out from the garage in Elmersdale to fetch him in time for the train. Was Mr. Pace quite his usual self? Absolutely. Most normal in every way. Now, can you describe the visitor at all? I'm afraid not. I didn't see him. Mrs. Middleton showed him straight into the gunroom, and then came to tell my uncle. What did your uncle say? He seemed rather annoyed but went off at once. It was about five minutes later that I heard the sound of a raised voice. I ran out into the hall and almost collided with Mrs. Middleton. Then we heard the shot. The gunroom door was locked on the inside, and we had to go right round the house to the window. Of course that took some time, and the murderer had been able to get well away. My poor uncle. Her voice faltered. He had been shot. I saw at once he was dead. I sent Mrs. Middleton for the police. I was careful to touch nothing in the room, but to leave it exactly as I found it. I nodded approval. Now, as to the weapon. Well, I can make a guess at it, Captain Hastings. A pair of revolvers of my husband's were mounted upon the wall. One of them is missing. I pointed this out to the police, and they took the other one away with them. When they have extracted the bullet, I suppose they will know for certain. May I go to the gunroom? Certainly. The police have finished with it, but the body has been removed. She accompanied me to the scene of the crime. At that moment, Havering entered the hall, and with a quick apology, his wife ran to him. I was left to undertake my investigations alone. I may as well confess at once that they were rather disappointing. In detective novels, clues abound, but here I could find nothing that struck me as out of the ordinary except a large bloodstain on the carpet where I judged the dead man had fallen. I examined everything with painstaking care and took a couple of pictures of the room with my little camera, which I had brought with me. I also examined the ground outside the window, but it appeared to have been so heavily trampled underfoot that I judged it, it was useless to waste time over it. No, 
I had seen all that Hunter's Lodge had to show me. I must go back to Elmersdale and get in touch with the chap. Accordingly, I took leave of the Haverings and was driven off in the car that had brought us up from the station. I found Jap at the Malock Arms, and he took me forthwith to see the body. Mr. Harrington Pace was a small, spare, clean-shaven man, typically American in appearance. He had been shot at close quarters with revolver. Turned away for a moment, remarked Jap, and the other fellow snatched up a revolver and shot him. The one Mrs. Havering handed over to us was fully loaded, and I suppose the other one was also. Curious what darn fool things people do. Fancy keeping two loaded revolvers hanging up on your wall. What do you think of the case? I asked, as we left the gruesome chamber behind us. Well, I've got my eye on Havering to begin with, oh yes, noting my exclamation of astonishment. Havering has one or two shady incidents in the past. When he was a boy at Oxford, there was some funny business about the signature on one of his father's cheques. All hoshed up, of course. Then he's pretty heavily in debt now, and they're the kind of debts he wouldn't like to go to his uncle about. Whereas you may be sure the uncle's will would be in his favour. Yes, I've got my eye on him and that's why I wanted to speak to him before he saw his wife. But their statements dovetail all right, and I've been to the station, and there's no doubt whatever that he left by 6.15. That gets up to London at about 10.30. He went straight to his club, he says, and if that's confirmed all right, why, he couldn't have been shooting his uncle here at 9 o'clock in a black beard. Ah uh, yes, I was going to ask you what you thought about the beard. Chap winked. I think it grew pretty fast. Grew in the five miles from Elmersdale to Hunter's Lodge. Americans that I've met are mostly clean shaven. Yes, it's amongst Mr. Pace's American associates that will have to look for the murderer. I questioned the housekeeper first and then her mistress and their stories agree all right, but I'm sorry Mrs. Havering didn't get a look at the fellow. She's a smart woman, and she might have noticed something that was set us on the track. I sat down and wrote a minute and lengthy account to Poirot. I was able to add various further items of information before I posted the letter. The bullet had been extracted, and was proved to have been fired from a revolver identical with the one held by the police. Furthermore, Mr. Harring's movements on the night in question had been checked and verified, and it was proved beyond doubt that he had actually arrived in London by the train in question, and thirdly, a sensational development had occurred. A city gentleman living at Ening on Crossing Haven Green to get to the district railway station that morning, had observed a brown paper parcel stuck between the railings. Opening it, he found that it contained a revolver. He handed the parcel over to the local police station, and before night it was proved to be the one we were in search of, the fellow to that given us by Mrs. Havering. 
one bullet had been fired from it. All this I added to my report. A wire from Poirot arrived whilst I was at breakfast the following morning. Of course, the black-bearded man was not hovering. Only you or Jap would have such an idea. Wire me the descriptions of the housekeeper and what clothes she wore this morning. The same for Mrs. Havering. Do not waste time taking photographs of interiors. They are underexposed and not in the least artistic. It seemed to me that Poirot's style was unnecessary facetious. I also fancied he was a shade jealous of my position on the spot with full facilities for handling the case. His request for a description of the clothes worn by the two women appeared to me to be simply ridiculous, but I complied as well as I, a mere man, was able to. At eleven, a reply wire came from Praro. Advise chap, arrest the housekeeper before it is too late. Dumbfounded, I took the wire to chap. He swore softly under his breath. He's the goods, Monsieur Poirot. If he says so, there's something in it. And I hardly noticed the woman. I don't know that I can go so far as arresting her, but I'll have her watched. We'll go up right away and take another look at her. But it was too late. Mrs. Middleton, the quiet middle-aged woman who had appeared so normal and respectable, had vanished into thin air. Her box had been left behind. It contained only ordinary wearing apparel. There was no clue to her identity or as to her whereabouts. From Mrs. Havering, we elicited all the facts we could. I engaged her about three weeks ago when Mrs. Emery, our former housekeeper, left. She came to me from Mrs. Selborne's agency in Mount Street, a very well-known place. I get all my servants from there. They sent several women to see me, but this Mrs. Middleton seemed the nicest and had splendid references. I engaged her on the spot and notified the agency of the fact. I can't believe that there was anything wrong with her. She was such a nice, quiet woman. The thing was certainly a mystery. Whilst it was clear that the woman herself could not have committed the crime, since at the moment the shot was fired, Mrs. Havering was with her in the hall. Nevertheless, she must have had some connections with the murder, or why would she suddenly take to her heels and bolt? I wired the latest development to Poirot and suggested returning to London and making inquiries at Selborne's agency. Poirot's reply was prompt. Useless to inquire at the agency. They will never have heard of her. Find out what vehicle took her up to the hunter's lodge when she first arrived there. Though mystified, I was obedient. The means of transport to Elmsdale was limited. The local garage had two battered Ford cars, and there were two station files. None of these had been requisitioned on the dating question. When questioned, Mrs. Havering explained that she had given the woman the money for a fare down to Derbyshire, and it was sufficient to hire a car or fly to take her up to Hunter's Lodge. There was usually one of the Fords at the station 
on the chance of it being required, taking into consideration the further fact that nobody at the station had noticed the arrival of a stranger, black-bearded or otherwise, on the fatal evening, everything seemed to point to the conclusion that the murderer had come to the spot in a car, which had been waiting near at hand to aid his escape, and that the same car had brought the mysterious housekeeper to her new post. I may mention that inquiries at the agency in London bore out Poirot's prognostication. No such woman as Mrs Middleton had ever been on their books. They had received the Honourable Mrs Havering's application for a housekeeper and had sent her various applicants for the post. When she sent them the engagement fee, she admitted to mention which woman had been selected. Somewhat crestfallen, I returned to London. I found Parrow established in her armchair by the fire in a garish silk dressing gown. He greeted me with much affection. Mon ami Hastings, but how glad I am to see you. Veritably, I have for you a great affection. And you have enjoyed yourself? You have run to and fro with a good chap. You have interrogated and investigated to your heart's content. Poirot, I cried, the thing's a dark mystery. It will never be solved. It is true that we are not likely to cover ourselves with glory over it, Poirot replied. No, indeed, it is a hard nut to crack. Oh, as far as that goes... I am very good at cracking the nuts, a veritable squirrel. It is not what which embarrasses me. I know well enough who killed Mr. Harrington Pace. You know, how did you find out? Your illuminating answers to my wires supplied me with the truth. See here, Hastings, let us examine the facts methodically and in order. Mr. Harrington Pace is a man with a considerable fortune, which at his death will doubtless pass to his nephew. Point number one, his nephew is known to be desperately hard up. Point number two, and his nephew is also known to be, shall we say, a man of rather loose moral fibre. Point number three, I said, but Roger Havering, is proved to have journaled straight up to London, precisement, and therefore, as Mr. Havering left Elmersdale at 6.15, and since Mr. Pace cannot have been killed before he left, or the doctor would have spotted the time of the crime as being given wrongly when he examined the body, we conclude quite rightly that Mr. Havering did not shoot his uncle, but there is a Mrs. Havering hastening. Impossible, the housekeeper was with her when the shot was fired. Ah yes, the housekeeper, but she disappeared. She can be found. I think not. There is something particularly elusive about that housekeeper. Don't you think so, Hastings? It struck me at once. I replied. She played her part, I suppose, and then got out in the nick of time. And what was her part? asked Barrow inquisitively. Well, presumably to admit her confederate, the black-bearded man. Oh no, that was not her part, 
Her part was what you have just mentioned, to provide an alibi for Mrs. Havering at the moment the shot was fired, and no one will ever find her one of me, because she does not exist. There is no such person as your so great Shakespeare says. It was Dickens, I murmured, unable to suppress a smile. But what do you mean, Poirot? I mean that Zoe Havering was an actress before her marriage, that you and Jab only saw the housekeeper in a dark hall, a dim middle-aged figure in black, with a faint subdued voice, and finally that neither you nor Jab nor the local police, who the housekeeper fetched, ever saw Mrs. Middleton and her mistress at one and the same time. It was child's play for the clever and daring woman. On the pretext of summoning her mistress, she runs upstairs, slips on a bright jumper and a hat with the black curls attached, which she jams down over the grey transformation. A few deft touches and makeup is removed, a slight dusting of rouge, and the brilliant Zoe Havering comes down with her clear ringing voice. Nobody looks particular at the housekeeper. Why should they? There is nothing to connect her with the crime. She too has an alibi. But the revolver was found at Ely. Mrs. Havering could not have placed it there. No, that was Roger Havering's job. But it was a mistake on their part. It put me on the right track. A man who has committed a murder with a revolver which he found on the spot, would fling it away at once. He would not carry it up to London with him. No, the motive was clear. The criminals wished to focus the interest of the police on a spot far removed from Derbyshire. They were anxious to get the police away as soon as possible from the vicinity of Hunter's Lodge. Of course the revolver found at Ealing was not the one which Mr. Pace was shot. Roger Havering discharged one shot from it, brought it up to London, and went straight to his club to establish his alibi. Then went quickly out to Ealing by the district, a matter of about twenty minutes only. He placed the parcel where it was found, and so back to town. That charming creature, his wife, quietly shoots Mr. Pace after dinner, you remember he was shot from behind, another significant point to that. They reload the revolver and put it back in its place, and then starts off with her desperate little comedy. It's incredible, I murmured, fascinated, and yet, and yet it is true, Beyonce, my friend, it is true, but to bring that precious pair to justice, that is another matter. Well, Jap must do what he can. I have written him fully, but I very much fear, Hastings, that we shall be obliged to leave them to faint, or le bon Dieu, whichever you prefer. The wicked flourish, like a green bay tree, I reminded him. But a price, Hastings, always at a price, croyez-moi. Poirot's forebodings was confirmed. Jap was convinced of the truth of his theory, was unable to get together the necessary evidence to ensure a conviction. 
Mr. Pace's huge fortune passed into the hands of his murderers. Nevertheless, Nemesis did overtake them, and when I read in the paper that the Honourable Roger and Mrs. Havering were amongst those killed in the crashing of the air mail to Paris, I knew that justice was satisfied. <laughs>